Hey, Tori. Hi, Greg. Do you ever, uh, maybe in your own life or maybe just looking at life in general, go, wow, things are stuck? Yes. And, and there's almost this sense of, hmm. Can unstuck is is unstuck really possible? Like a, a a reality that I can dream about, or is just just the way it is? Well, this isn't one of those um, you can do it, pick me up, pep talk kinds of things. Of you know, let's just think positively now, and we can all make our New Year's resolutions that we made all those weeks or months ago in the beginning of twenty twenty two. I also hope we never have one of those yeah, episodes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Personally, I always skip those ones. I'm going to guess that as long as you and I have something to say about this podcast, that probably isn't the way we'll go. Try to lean a little more into the messiness of reality. Yeah. And yet, and yet, the hope, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and, and, and to me, part of what makes hope... Uh, Part of what reminds me that hope is more than a word is when I hear someone who's kind of like they're doing it or they've been through it and you look at their life story and you go, my goodness, that's a that's something. And um, I think our guest today on A Godzillion and One um, is, I think he fits into that category. Um, Andre Norman you know, went from being like, you know, to hear him tell it, he went from like being one of the most feared prison gang leaders in the United States to like one. He's a dynamic agent of change. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, this is one of those 180 stories. But you have to hear the beginning of the story, I think, to appreciate what he's doing now. And, and to even almost. Is this the right word? to even trust what he's saying that he's doing right now. Because you hear him say this and you're like, how can you be doing this? How can you be having this kind of an effect? It doesn't make sense without the beginning of his story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's all in context. And, you know, early in his childhood, he he gets involved in a life of crime and violence. And it's it, it ends up with him being sentenced to, what, like over 100 years in prison? Yeah, so life imprisonment from an early age, that was that was his reality. Yeah, yeah. So you, you hear this part of the story, and then where he decided to turn his life around? Solitary confinement for two years. I, I don't, my mind doesn't even know how to, to process that. But that's where he was. That's where he began to consider some things. And um, so he wins his appeal, and he's, he's, released and you've got to you got to you got to hear him tell the story but now the rest of his days he's wanting to uh break this cycle he's wanting people and i would say particularly younger people mm-hmm. to get unstuck and i i just so appreciate the 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 intentionality of him speaking life into a younger generation yeah, it would be one thing, his story of just getting out of prison and choosing to turn his life around and just, that would be quite a story in itself, right. but it wasn't enough for him. He said, okay, now that I'm out, I think part of my calling is to is to help change a generation um, yeah. and, to, and yeah. to try to teach them what I think he wished someone would have taught him of, 
he tells some heartbreaking stories about the lack of being seen and being loved from adults in his life. Yeah. It didn't put him on the wrong path, but it didn't help him see that there was another path. So he felt stuck and he just kept moving forward in that stuckness. And so his whole model now is meeting people and kind of giving them a, a totally different perspective. And like you said, speaking life into them. Yeah. But it includes this idea of taking ownership of your own story. So you, you've got to own your story now and, and, and live that forward. And so there's all of that and a trumpet, right? And a trumpet. And so, and a trumpet. And so it's just, I, I really think the best thing for us to do is to get out of the way and let Andre Norman tell his story. So Andre, I want to start off by just again, thanking you. I know we were talking just a second ago, so much of your story, so much of really what you're doing now resonates with with me and with us but I, I we can we just start at the beginning tell us a little bit about growing up in Boston and your family and just give us some context well my mom murdered a high school sweetheart and she had two kids her husband went to jail for robbing banks and she met my dad a local hustler and she had four more kids um the house was traumatic chaos a lot of domestic violence and you just got used to it as a kid that this is what happens. Your mom gets beat up. Then fast forward, we finally get old enough to go to school. Well, I get old enough because I have older brothers and sisters. And I started going to school. It was wonderful. It was just hundreds of kids to play with. It was everything you could imagine at the school. It was just great. And in the first grade, I was riding home on the bus one day and white kids lined up on the side of the road and threw rocks at us and called us niggers. And when I got home to my dad, I was like, who are these people? I never met white people before. Why are they throwing rocks at me? And I asked my dad, what do these names mean? Because I never heard them before. And my dad's standing there looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and he walks away. I didn't know and find out until later that my father grew up in a town called Petersburg, Virginia. And when he was a kid, kids threw rocks and names at him. My grandfather told me that's just the way it was. And they never dealt with it. It just started and stopped. So when it happened to his kids, being us, he was twice twice traumatized. Hmm. And one day for my... For school, the rock started. One day, the rock stopped. They managed to work it out some kind of way. One day for my mom, the beating started. One day, the beating stopped. My dad moved out. And so you got a single mom, six kids living in the inner city. You've seen the movie. There's tons of them on HBO. And she struggles. She tries to find a way. And I'm the kid that doesn't do well. I'm second youngest. And me and my little brother, we just can't catch on. We're too far back. And she's too busy. And it's a lot of temptation. And we gravitate to the street. By the time I'm halfway through high school, I'm a full-fledged criminal. I'm in the street full-time. I have no direction or guidance until I find myself in court one day. The process was in motion. And at 18, they put me in a van, drove me to prison, and they dropped me off. So that's a lot. And I want to go back if I could. That's a lot. And just, you know, there's heartache in there. And the, the first word that I that that jumped out to me was chaos. You, you there, there was chaos early on. And and then the darkness of what you were describing, you know, on on you know on your way to school and all of that. But then the next thing though was it felt like I what did you say we were the, the last two kids we couldn't catch on. We couldn't catch on. So talk to me a little bit about just a child who's living in chaos, who can't catch on, 
what is a child thinking at that point? How, how do you adapt? How do you survive in that moment? When you're a child living in chaos, whether it's domestic violence, it's around substance abuse, addictions, um, poverty, um, absenteeism, whatever the thing is, as a child, you don't have the wherewithal to know that there's a greater world out there. So right. at six and seven years old, I didn't even know New York existed. I didn't know St. Louis existed. I didn't know anybody outside of what I could see existed. There was no internet, there was no cell phones, there was no anything. You only saw what was in front of you. And from zero to six years old, I only saw inside of my house. I wasn't allowed to just walk to the corner or go to the mall or go downtown. From zero to six years old, I existed inside of my mother's house. That was the universe. That was the universe. And that's all that I saw. So if we could, um, I know we've, we've kind of jumped forward a little bit, but can you go back to the third grade and tell me about Miss Oliver and um, just her, her impact on your life? We bounced around schools once my dad left and we found a new apartment, a new place, and we went to a new school. And at that first school, they give you a test to find out what level you should be on. And they tested me in the third grade and they found out I was illiterate, just like my dad. So back then, they had a thing called a dummy class. They have a lot of special names for it now. They stick you in a room, they close the door, and they just leave you. And They called it a dummy class. It was called a dummy class when I was in school. It's for the kids who can't read and write, put them in that room, and just close the door. And best of luck to them. Luckily for me, my dummy teacher went on break one day. She didn't come to school. So they put us in regular classes. And I ended up in Miss Oliver's class. When Miss Oliver told me to sit down, because I'm jumping around at the beginning of class, I ignored her. And I, she said it again. I ignored it. She came and she grabbed me in my collar. She put me in my chair. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get beat up like my mom used to get beat up. Mm-hmm. I always knew it was coming. And I mm-hmm. thought this was my day. And she saw the horror in my face. And then she saw the pain in my face. And she said, I'm not going to hit you. And I'm like, yeah, I heard that before, too. Mm-hmm. I'm saying she's like, and she tried to apologize for me being scared. I'm like, I heard that before, too. And then she did one of the biggest favors anybody's ever done for me. She took me out of the dummy class and she put me in her class. And at first I did whatever she did, said to do because I was scared of her. Then I started doing whatever she said to do because she consistently was nice to me. And I used to get off the bus and run because I knew that she loved me. And because she spent the time to teach me my learning style. She's told me I'm not a dummy. I just learned differently. Everybody has their learning style and you, we need to discover yours. Yeah. And she helped me discover my learning style. And lo and behold, I wasn't a dummy. I just learned differently from other kids. Well, if I go back to that word chaos, it feels like she was grabbing you out of chaos and putting is it putting structure around you, putting putting a, a putting a, a vision in front of you. What what was that? The way I look at it is, she looked at my life. She couldn't adopt me. She couldn't take me away from my mom. She couldn't take me out of my house or my neighborhood. She taught me how to climb out of a hole. Okay. Okay. That's how I see it. She says, I can't change your environment. I can't change your circumstance. Right. But I can give you the tools to deal with what you're really facing. Okay. Yeah. So really the chaos is still there, which explains the rest of the story. But this was a, a, a this was the beginning of the seed of something that was planted in you that that flourished later. How old were you when you were when you were arrested or or picked up? The first time I got arrested, I was 12. I, I, I was questioned by the police when I was 12. I was in the eighth grade. The first time I was arrested, I was 13. I was in ninth grade. I was a freshman in high school. So so this is long after Miss Oliver, but there's... 
long after so you're still trying to catch up. You're still trying to figure your way out. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't have to at 12 years old provide for myself. I shouldn't at 12 years old have to figure out how am I going to get around or a plan for my life. At 12 years old, I'm in charge of planning Andre's life. And the only problem at 12 years old is I'm not a good planner because I, I have limited experience. How could you be a good planner? Right. I knew nothing. I knew what was in front of me and what was around me. And there was positivity around me. And there was negativity around me. Negative speaks longer, longer than positive. So we're, we're at a place now in your story. And I want you to continue uh, to, with you're 18 and um, you're in prison. You get recruited into a gang pretty quickly. Is, is that right? Day one. Day one. What is that like? Can you describe that? You're sitting in a county jail. The judges write off a ton of sentences. And they take you and they put you in a van. They drive you to a maximum security penitentiary in the middle of nowhere. And they drop you off. You've never been here. You don't know anybody in here. You've only heard horror stories. And you're walking in here as an 18-year-old kid into a building with grown men who've been in this situation for decades. And they just take you and they throw you in. It's like, hopefully you make it. Hope maybe you won't. I think of, I used to watch National Geographic and there was a scene where these turtles were born and all the turtles would come up out of the sand at the same time and run for the water. And the seagulls would come and eat the turtles. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is horrible. But that's prison. All us brand new turtles would pop up out of the sand and we would run for the water. And then the seagulls would just come in and just indiscriminately just eat, eat little baby turtles. And the question is, are you going to be the one of the people who make it to the water? So by by joining a gang, that was a way to survive. I mean, what's the decision now to say, OK, I'm going to join instead of keep to myself? Oh, keep to yourself. They explained to me. They explained to me. They said, if you want to go independent and be by yourself, you can. But this place is ruled by numbers and force. And a force of one is not as strong as a force of 15. So when the 15 realize that you're a force of one, that they're going to overtake you. If they want to take your property, if they want to take, I'm saying, your money, if they want to rape you, if whatever they want to do to you is 15 against one. So you're going to lose. You can try to go with yourself. And there's so many groups of seagulls or hyenas around here that hyenas attack the weak. And if you're by yourself, you will be deemed weak and you will be attacked. And depending on what pack of hyenas attack you, depends on the consequence you suffer. So you're now in a gang and day one, but is it fair to say you kind of started working your way up the leadership chain? When I first got there, they put me in a gang and you're in and you just, you just take orders. There's, there's no other way around it. You're a little guy in a gang, you take orders. And you start, it's like, it's like being a pro boxer. You have zero fights, but you're a pro boxer. You just turn pro. And you keep having fights and you keep having fights and you got a two and all record then a four and all record then a 10 and all record. But you fought a bunch of bums. Then you start fighting better fighters. And you, before long, you have a name because you've beaten a lot of great situations. And okay. that's how your name is formed in prison. Every situation, not just a fight, every encounter goes on your record. So every decision, every choice you're making is is developing your record. Yes. In the eyes of, of your gang and those who above you. But what happens is you're in a unit and Johnny says to you, you know something, Greg? I think you're a coward. You need to go sit down. And he just cusses you out. And 
pushes you in the face and he walks away and you do nothing. Let's fast forward a week and you try to talk tough. I'm like, man, last week when dude was cussing you out, you didn't say nothing. You was a coward last week. Be a coward this week. So anytime you make you misstep, it goes on your institutional record amongst the prisoners. Oh, he got beat up or somebody smacked him in the mouth or somebody took his stuff. And, and what one person does it gives everybody else license to do. OK, OK. But clearly you are amassing a. Um... A, a record, a, a reputation, because you are working your way up the ladder. Yes. Um, I had a lot of rage as a young kid, and I didn't exercise my rage in drugs or alcohol. I ra- I exercised my rage the way I was taught, violence. I watched my mom be beaten. If my mom can be hit, anybody can be hit. So fighting was what I did. When you beat somebody up, they celebrate. So I liked the gratification of being celebrated. So I kept fighting. Yeah, this may be crazy, but I'm trying to connect these gang leaders who are affirming you to to Miss Oliver, who was also affirming you, but in a completely different way. You're still looking for somebody to say, "Yeah, I'm 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 worth it." I would say when I got to jail, the the guys that I followed behind were like surrogate dads. I wanted, I wanted approval from these guys. Miss Oliver taught me and she helped me. These guys weren't helping me, but they were affirming me. That makes, that makes so much more sense. You didn't have a dad that was really leading you through this. And so these fellas are the best you got. Best I got. And I started looking at them as surrogate dads. And I always wanted to prove to my dad that I was worth loving. Yeah. So I'm trying to prove to these guys that I'm worth loving. And to do that, you have to hurt people because that's what appeased everybody the ability to hurt somebody oh my what what a what a cycle though i mean because eventually you somebody's noticing something because you end up in in solitary confinement for a period of time i spent two and a half years in solitary confinement for hurting people you were in solitary confinement for two and a half years straight two and a half years straight locked in a basement no sunlight so how often are you allowed to get out? How often? What what is Describe that experience. The rules of solitary confinement, you commit a serious offense within inside the prison and they take you to a hearing and they sentence you anywhere from one to 10 years in solitary. Um, and I got sentenced the last time to two and a half years in solitary, which means 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're staying in a one man cell locked behind the door. The rights you have are three times a week, you get a 10 minute shower if time permits, and five hours a week, you're supposed to get recreation time and what we consider our technically dog kennels. And for me, I hate the cold. So from October to April, I didn't go outside at all because you go outside, it's like five feet of snow and you're freezing. Half the year, you stay 24 hours a day in your cell. The other half the year, you got a few hours in a dog kennel. But you just sit in yourself 24 hours a day by yourself. Any books, anything that you get to have there, it's just you? It's for the most part just you. I would get a newspaper on occasion. And I started reading the newspaper every day, all the way through. I read one paper for like 30 days. And after a while, I started solving the problems in the newspaper. So I read in the newspaper that there's a housing crisis. I read in the newspaper that there's um, a traffic problem. I read in the newspaper. There was an awesome, I mean, whatever the problem was in the newspaper, I would sit and say, how would I fix it? And I would spend hours coming up with solutions for the problems in the newspaper. Wow. That's wow. how I stay wow. sane. Because otherwise, you just look at paint dry and it's already dry. Did you know how long you were 
going to be there? I mean, was it like a, hey, you're here for two and a half years? They gave you two, two and a half years. Okay, so you knew that. And are you clicking those days off? Are you at, aware at all? You don't know what time of day it is because you don't have access to sunlight. You know what time it is based on what they're feeding. So if oh there's my. eggs in your tray, it's, it's morning time. If there's oh some my. kind of sandwich, it's afternoon. And if it's like some kind of meat, it's usually dinner time. You have no correlation of time. Okay, so you've set the you've set the stage very clearly here. But God speaks to you in confinement. Yes. Talk about that. When you spend two and a half years in confinement every day, 24 hours a day, locked in a cell, before they release you back in the general population from a long segregation sentence, they'll put you in um, a step-down program where you might, now you get to come out around 10 or 15 people versus 24 hours a day by yourself. So I'm in a step-down program getting ready to get out. I had six months left to come out of solitary. And some friends of mine had got hurt at another institution in a riot. So my response was attack the guys who are on the unit with me in retaliation. And before I could, God told me, don't do this. Life choice. And I said, why are you talking to me, God? See, all my life, there's been no God. I said, well, my mother used to get beat to the floor. You didn't show up. When those kids threw rocks and names at me, you didn't show up. When I had to go hustle to buy school clothes, you didn't show up. And I told God every single time he didn't show up in my life. And I'm like, why are you here bothering me? I said, I used to go to church. I didn't actually go to church. I went to Bible study and prayer and choir group. My mother was in a choir. So I would go to church every Wednesday night with my mom for choir rehearsal. I love singing. And I had a deal with the choir director. The deal was, if you sing Amazing Grace, because that's my favorite song of all time, I'll come every week. Whenever they, they would do their rehearsal, and at the end, they would say, oh, Amazing Grace for Andre. Then one week they forgot. They didn't sing it. And I didn't come back. And me and God argued about who he was and why he was talking to me. And I'm good. I said, I don't need you. You don't need me. I don't need you. Let's, let's keep it moving. He just kept saying, Andre, life choice. You can't win an argument with God first. <laughs> so if anybody tells you they did, they're on heavy medication. So I go back to my cell. I don't hurt anybody that day. I said, well, if I can't be a psychopath, what am I going to be? And I sat on my bed and I said, okay, now what? Oh my! God just blocked the path to me being a psychopath. So now what? So I said, okay, I, I, I want to be free. That made sense. I said, I, I want to be here. I want to be free. But I looked around at all the different groups, white, black, Spanish, Asian, drug dealers, murderers, burglars. Everybody went home. Everybody came back. Free didn't work for people. So I said, I don't want to be free because free doesn't work. So I switched free to successful. I said, successful people don't come here. If I can go home and be successful, then I won't come back. So I said, I'll go and be successful and I'll never come back. Successful people come from college. I said, I'll go to college. I got it. I picked a school called Harvard University. Yeah. So you are working all of this out in solitary in a what you're describing as a back and forth dialogue with God, which it sounds so extraordinary. Me and God had the argument and he won. So now I'm sitting in my cell saying, OK, what do I do now? OK, OK. So me and God, God was like, I was going to stab some people. God told me, don't do it. God won that argument. You're back now trying to figure out what's next. What's next? Successful. Hey, I've heard of this place called Harvard. Okay, yeah. now what? Keep going with this story. So I come up with the plan to go to Harvard. I come out to sell the next day and I tell all my homies, you call my gang. I figured it out. He said, you figured it out? I said, I figured it out. I have the key to life. He said, what is the deal? I said, we're going to go home, go to Harvard, be successful. And they were like, Dre, you sound crazy right now. 
I called my mom. She thought I was crazy. I called my dad. He thought I was crazy. And I realized I was by myself. The best thing that happened to me is nobody believed me. The worst thing that happened was nobody believed me. Because had my friends told me, let's go, I'd have tried to take 10 psychopathic gang members from prison to Harvard. And the odds would have went tremendously down on us making it. But when nobody believed me, it made me go by myself, which made the journey a lot easier, a lot more plausible. And I said, okay, I went in my cell. I said, what do I need to do to get this thing achieved? And I made a list of all the things that were wrong with Andre. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was violent. I was a high school dropout. I was a gang member. I'm in solitary confinement. I'm black. I listed it all. What are the things that I said now? What is stopping me from becoming successful? What's inside of me? Not what's wrong with the God. Not what's wrong with my mom. Not what's wrong with the gang. What's inside of me that's stopping this from happening? I went back to school, got my GED. Started going to counseling classes. I started going to the law library. I started working every day for eight hours, bettering me. 20 hours a day, I worked on Andre. And it took eight years, eight years before I walked out of prison. So talk to us a little bit about that. How did you get released from prison? I overturned a case on appeal, took 10 years off my sentence, and then I became what they call a model prisoner as best as you could. And I started designing programs for other prisoners. I started designing programs for kids in juvenile. I started working with kids at local high schools. I'm talking to other gang members on the unit and in the prison, getting them to calm down. And I just did everything I could to better myself and by proxy those around me every single day. Then the parole board sat with me and they said, Andre, we're going to give you a chance. Everything says no. (laughs) Everything on paper when it comes to you would make us say no. Never let this man out of jail. We're going to take a chance. Maureen Walsh, chairman of the parole board, she looked me in my face. She said, I believe you and I believe in you. Now go prove me right. I've been home for almost 22 years. I proved her right that I was worth taking a chance on. I had shown remorse, repentance. I had a plan. And the one thing everybody says to me is not we're happy that you're this or you're that or you've been. He said, Andre, you did exactly what you said you were going to do. You actually did it. So many people sit in prison and have these big dreams or big goals and they don't achieve them. People sit in life who've never been in prison, have big goals and big dreams and never achieve them. It's Andre. You did what you said you were going to do. Well, okay, but so now we're out of prison. Talk about that 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 re-entry into this completely different existence. Now, what is that like, and and how did you continue to pursue those goals? The thing that most people who don't live in our communities don't understand is not a big differential between prison and the community. Okay, it's not. I mean, you would think that there is. You have a little bit more freedoms, a little bit more access to things. But our inner city neighborhoods are governed like a prison. Everybody's huddled into this little tiny neighborhood. They're kept into that neighborhood by a mythical fantasy wall. So you're forced to stay in the ghetto and hash it out and duke it out. And prison in the community at one level looks the same. So when I came home, there wasn't much differential in the mindset. There's a lot of despair, a lot of hopelessness, a lot of people giving up, a lot of people on drugs, in and out of jail in the community. So I, it was like a A lateral transfer, I just had more access. The difference between the community and prison is I can leave my community. I wasn't allowed to leave the prison. So you did, though, now you're continuing these 
you're working towards these goals. Did Harvard ever hear about your story? Harvard heard about my story, yes. I started working in, again, with black boys, and I started working with girls because I got called to go work with girls, and their story was treacherous. Then somebody asked me to go work with white kids, but I didn't understand. I'm like, white kids got it great. Why didn't I go talk to white kids? I went to a white school. They do drugs. They have bullies. They have suicide attempts. They have parents who don't pay attention. I'd have never thought. I grew up watching Leave it to Beaver, Partridge Family, Brady Bunch, 90210, Melrose Place. None of those white people I saw on TV ever had a problem at the end of 30 minutes. So I'm thinking this is how white folks' life really is. And it wasn't. But it wasn't until I went to that school and I saw the kids in person myself that I realized that I was ignorant. Because ignorance is just you don't know. And I did not know that these kids had it tough. And that being 15 is hard no matter where you come from. So I just started doing programs for everybody. I used to help black kids when I first started out because that's where I was comfortable. Now I tell you I help people. Listening to you talk is like drinking from a fire hose, man. You are you're just I, I understand why the word hope is important to you because just hearing you talk about it, it's it's just coming through. But at some point you started the Academy of Hope. And I'd I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that dream and how that started and, and really how you began that program. Um, because I think that's something people need to know about. The program technically started when I was in the county jail, when I first got arrested and I got in a fight my first morning and they put me in solitary confinement. And I'm like up there, like, okay, this is bad. <laughs> and I'm sitting in a hole and it came to me. I got a um, paper towel. And I got a pen. I wrote down the words to Amazing Grace. I could actually remember the entire song. I wrote the words down to Amazing Grace. And I knew the song, but I just wrote it, something to me, write it out. And I wrote it out and I stuck it in my pocket. And for the next 14 years, I sang that song. Routinely, I would sing that song. Good days, bad days, no matter where I was, that was my thing. And the Academy of Hope, was I needed hope that day. And that song, Amazing Grace, was my hope and it was my comfort, it was my grace, and when I needed it most. And I know what it's like to be in a cell and get a message that a loved one died. I know what it's like to be in a cell and get a message that something happened and you can't beat it. Or some great event, a marriage happened, a baby happened, and you just can't beat it. And it's so depressing and it's so disheartening that you just feel like you're by yourself against the world. So Academy of Hope was born when I was sitting in that cell. And I know what it's like. I sat in there and I felt hopeless. And I felt lost. And I felt alone. And for me, that song was my, was my grace. And I wanted to be that grace for other people. And showing up and delivering that song through words or through presence. Sometimes I don't even talk. I just show up. And God showed up for me in that song. And and so in a specific way, Academy of Hope is how how what does that showing up look like? I mean, you talk about the traveling around the world. What what is the Academy of Hope? The Academy of Hope as is a prison based program. We go into the prisons, we go into the cells, we go into solitary confinement, we go on the death row, we go into the units, and we sit with people. We don't tell them we're going to get you out. We don't tell them that the world's going to be better tomorrow. We don't tell them that they're all for their crimes. 
We tell them that they have purpose, that they're loved. People have purpose. And oftentimes when you lose sight of your purpose, addiction comes in, criminality comes in, despair comes in. So we come as a testimony to the people of what is possible. So they say, well, you used to be in here and you used to be one of the worst of us. I said, yes. And I decided to follow the light instead of follow the darkness. And when I followed the light, it wasn't easy. It wasn't like I snapped my fingers and clicked my heels. Eight years of working hard, eight years of people still not trusting me, eight years of challenges and tribulations, but I didn't give up. And what I have on the back end of that is a testimony that says, if you don't give up, success is possible. So I've got to go back to something that you said a minute ago where you were uh, you were learning about struggles that happen with 15 year olds, no matter where they live, no matter what they look like. We, as a general population of folk, have lost the ability to speak to people that aren't a lot like us, that aren't in our tribe, that aren't in our, maybe in our neighborhood or in our socioeconomic bracket. And it seems to me like you're saying something there that there's there's a lot of similarities that people have. And I guess I'm wondering, is there something you could speak to the rest of us about how we can, how we can do a better job than maybe we're doing on this. When it comes to communication, the first thing you have to understand is what is the vernacular of the person that you're speaking to? So if you're a wealthy mom and dad, you live in the suburbs, or you're struggling in the rural area of the country, or you're living in inner city or whatever, pain is its own communication line. Right, right, right. I speak to pain. And if you're in pain, that's the thing that's governing your life. So if you're a white kid in the suburbs or a white kid in the city or a black kid in the suburbs or a black kid in the city, when you're in pain, that is the thing that's governing your life. So I don't come in and talk suburban. I don't come in and talk hood. I don't come in and talk rural. I come in and I speak to your pain. A common language that we have as humans, pain and struggle. And even even that that longing for what you were calling uh, purpose and and vision. And those are Those are common threads through our humanity. It is so hard to actually accept and acknowledge somebody else is in pain that has nothing to do with you. So often somebody will say, well, I dealt with something similar. This is what I did. Or I saw this happen and this is what I did. I saw this and this is what they did. That's totally discrediting the person themselves. If you have a splinter in your foot, you're in pain. It doesn't matter what happened to 30,000 other people. So how one thing affects you may not exactly affect me the same way. So when I go in, I speak to the person, not to the stats, not to the the roles or the, I mean, the percentages. I don't speak to percentages. Well, 80% of kids have this and 85% of kids did it this way. I speak to the who's in front of me. And you listen, keyword, listen to them and they will share with you where they are. Don't project them the way you want them to be. Accept them for where they are. Don't question them how they got there. This is where you are. Let me help you out of this situation. Yeah, that's wise. It, I, it, I'm, I can't help but think of when I've heard you, uh, you've mentioned before that in middle school, some of, the, some of the pivotal choices that you made revolved around maybe the idea that you didn't, that you felt less than or unseen. And that's kind of getting back to this idea of, 
listening and seeing someone for where they are in the moment that they're that they're in. In in middle school, I determined that my self worth was based on what I had on, uh, who I was around. I let other people and other things determine my value. There was uh, there will always be people who say what's cool, what's not. So you can go get the coolest thing ever, but the cool kids say you're not cool. You're still not cool. So it's it's a it's a tier system that's unfair exactly. and it's not really climbable because um, you have kids making the rules and kids don't make good rules. It's like prisons don't make good rules. Talk a little bit more about how it is that we, as listeners, how how do we interrupt this cycle that kids are in? How do we help young students to feel seen and loved and worthy? What, what does that sound like? What does that look like for us? I'm going to ask parents this question. My son's best friend's name is Arlo. <laughs> How do I know that? Because I talked to Arlo. I talked to Arlo's dad. Um, what is your son or your daughter's best friend's name? And what is their parent's name? How many conversations have you had with them? Because Arlo has way more impact on my son than I do. I got a 16-year-old kid who's out here who knows where he came from, and he has tremendous impact on my son. Because if Arlo thinks it's a great idea, to go shoplift, there's a chance my son will listen. If Arlo thinks it's a great idea to try to drink, there's a good chance my son will listen. If Arlo thinks it's a great idea to cut school, there's a good chance my son will listen. And the other way around for Arlo. If Brooks thinks X, Y, Z is a great idea, Arlo's subject to listen. You can teach them everything you want to teach them, but don't discredit the power of influence of their friends. So get to know their friends. Get to know the friends' parents. And get to know the ecosystem that you have your child in. Kids change ideas every 30 seconds. Are you up to date with what your kid, where he is and where he's been? Most parents are. All right. This is so good. I, I have to ask you a, a, a question here before we we uh, we just kind of turn the tables a little bit and ask you just some fun questions we ask everybody. Um, and nobody can see our listeners can't see this, but I can as I'm talking to you that you've just it's there's a beautiful trumpet sitting prominently behind yes. you. Um, would you please just tell us that story and, and how a teacher, how another teacher called out greatness in you? When I got to middle school, I went to middle school in the 70s. And back then it was on Internet, social media, you either in a band or you in a sports team. And I wasn't an athletic because I was really small. So I was put in a band. And the teacher gave me a trumpet. And she said, here's your trumpet. This is for you. And Miss Miss Ellis. And I played the trumpet all through middle school. And I just got really good at it. And I played the trumpet every single day, all throughout middle school. And when I got to the end of the eighth grade, I was ready to go to the district high school. And Miss Ellis came back to me. And she said, you can't go to the district high school. I said, why not? She said, you have a gift. What are you talking about? She said, you're a gifted musician. You need to go to a school that has space for gifted musicians. And I didn't understand it, but she said, you're a gifted musician. And she sent me to a magnet school that had a music program. And when I got there, I would hang out with the band kids in the morning. I would go to band in the morning. I'd play my trumpet. I was part of the band. In the afternoon, I hang out with the tough guys and the, and the tough guy kids. And we go out and we get in trouble. And one day the kids were like, in the afternoon, like, yo, Dre, what's that boxer carry? So it's my trumpet. They said, man, that's stupid, man. Black kids don't play the trumpet. You can't go no place with that. And they talked me out of playing the trumpet. It was like either give up my trumpet or give up them. And I go back to your friend group is more important than a lot of things. And I didn't have a strong relationship with my parents. I didn't have a strong relationship with other folks. 
I had the strongest relationship with these kids. And these kids told me if I didn't get rid of my trumpet, they wouldn't get rid of me. So I got rid of my trumpet. And when I got rid of my trumpet, what I didn't understand was I gave up my purpose and my direction. That was the thing that grounded me. That was the thing that gave me a, a reason to go to school. It gave me a reason to go to practice. And when I lost that, I lost everything. And we just don't know what that thing is until we just really begin to pay attention to to our life and what God has put in our life. It, it's a trumpet. It's a you're good at math. It's whatever it is. But there's something there. And I'm so curious that trumpet found its way back into your life. How, how did that happen? When I got to prison, when I decided I wanted to go to Harvard and I told my friends, they told me all the reasons I couldn't go to Harvard. All I heard that day were my friends in the ninth grade stealing my trumpet. I said, not again. And I just yeah. blew past them and I kept going um, on my dream. So when I tell the trumpet, I, I, I've been a motivational speaker for 22 years. I've spoken all over the world on all kinds of wonderful stages. And when I tell the trumpet story, it's never ending. One of the first questions always asked at the end of my speech is, did you ever play the trumpet again? Um, I had a group from New York order a trumpet and ship it to me. It's a reminder of me of you never, you never too old is never too late. Yeah. How about that? How about that? Well, let me, let me just now turn the corner here. Um, we don't have any like official award. There's no hardware to this, but we, we love talking about a way to go award. And, and we want to give a shout out to a person, an organization, an artist, somebody who's just doing great things in the world. Who, you go, who, who would you nominate for a way to go award? David Spence lives in uh, St. Louis. Uh, when I came to St. Louis, um, him and his wife, Susie, and their family, the entire family embraced me. And they, they had been doing work in the community for years um, in the inner city schools, in the city, just trying to make St. Louis a better place. I never really realized that people from the suburbs cared at that level. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. All right, Andre, we're going we're gonna to just ask some of these uh, one-off questions now, and you just give me the first answer that comes to mind. One thing you're loving these days that the rest of us should check out. You should check out, there's a book called Who Not How by Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan. Okay, okay. What's one way you're connecting with God? <laughs> I go serve, I go work, I go help the people. Um, the people, there's All right. no All right. comma asterisk to that. I go help people. So there's suicide prevention in Montana, mm-hmm. if it's gang outreach in Chicago, I help people every day. What's one lesson you wish you could have learned sooner? Therapy is good for everybody. What's one trait you had as a kid growing up that you still have today? I'm stubborn. I don't <laughs> stop it. Okay. And I think this last one's going to be easy for you. What's one way you're moving into this next year with hope? I wish you, you can't show it. There's my boy. <laughs> I have, um, I'm moving. I have no, no, the count is I'm trying to, it says do less, focus more, say no. Okay. Okay. So the way I'm moving into 2022 is with better strategies and how to improve what I did last year. All right. Be more efficient be more inclusive, and I can go places other people can't go. So I have to say no to some of the things that I'm used to doing because other people can do it. I've already crossed that path. So other people now can fill that space. I got to keep blazing a trail. If I'm walking with other people in the room, I'm in the wrong room. Mm. I got to go blaze a trail. Mm. All right. All right. Andre Norman, what a privilege it was. Thank you for sharing your story and for challenging us and and really stretching us. And uh, thanks for what you're doing. Uh, in our world. So uh, what a privilege it was to have you. And thank you again. Thanks for having me, brother. And I look forward to seeing you soon. 
Thanks for listening to a Godzillion and One podcast. Subscribe, share this episode with a friend, and head over to gregholder.com for the show notes. And as always, stop and notice this week the shockingly and seemingly endless ways to connect with each other, this world, and the God who made it all. We'll see you next time.